reductionism is this idea that we can reduce things to simpler things until we finally get a single thing. There's two keys above all others to get the result you want. You have to deal with how the mechanisms actually work. And then the other is that you have to deal with what really happens over time. Solving the problem of the body had nothing to do with anything that we've been taught. I'm of the bias that food is the most powerful thing out there when used correctly. I was able to subject very large populations to protocols and immediately see the results. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so excited to release this episode. Ever since I read Joel Green's book, The Immunity Code, I've been teasing little things that I learned from that book on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers. And you guys have been asking almost weekly if you missed the episode because it has been such a long time coming. You did not. Here it is. This was actually a four hour conversation, which is insane. I knew it needed to be a two parter. There is just so much information in the book. So here we are, part one. Don't worry, there is a full transcript in the show notes. The show notes are at melanieavalon.com slash immunity code one, the number one. So that will definitely help. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. There will also be an Instagram giveaway for this. You can win a signed copy of Joel's book. So just go to my Instagram to see that. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation, part one with Joel Green. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. So I am ridiculously excited and filled with anticipation about the conversation that I am about to have. Little backstory for listeners. So, well, first I will say this is the first time in the history of this show where I haven't even had the episode or the conversation yet, and I already told the guest or asked the guest if we could go super long and make it a two-part episode because that's how much incredible life-changing information is in this man's work. So guys, get excited. So this is part one. I will split it up. There will be a part two. But backstory, so I don't know when it came out. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I heard this guest on Ben Greenfield's show and some of the things that he was saying just really blew my mind. And I knew I had to read his book ASAP and try to get him on the show. And so I got the book. It is called The Immunity Code, The New Paradigm for Real Health and Radical Anti-Aging. And friends, <laughs> I I don't know. I feel like I often describe adjectives to the different books I read, but literally I am not making this up. I think this was the most mind-blowing book I've ever read in my entire life. I read it slowly over quite a few weeks. And as you guys know, I'm also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. And in the beginning of that show, like every single week, I was sharing all of the things I was learning. And I was like, oh my goodness, I just learned this and I just learned this. So prepare yourself for paradigm shifts, for things that you 
probably had no idea were potentially happening in your body, just get really excited because I am really excited. So I am here with Joel Green. Joel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melanie. I'm excited to do this. It's going to be great. It's going to be so great. We had some technical difficulties, but here we are. So we're good to go now. A little bit about Joel. So he is the creator of the Veep Nutrition System, which was actually the world's first commercially available program based on targeting gut communities to affect health and body composition. He's been a featured author, a speaker, and a consultant for nutrition companies, for a lot of publications, other podcasts. His work has been featured on The Dr. Phil Show a few times. So that's pretty, pretty cool. And he has a really cool personal story himself, which I, I learned all about in his book. So maybe that's actually a good place to start for listeners. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, about your own history? Because reading your book, it sounds, I mean, not like me, but I feel like I've been doing a lot of the things that are becoming really popular now. Like I've been doing them for quite a while, but you like completely surpassed that. Like you've You've been doing all the things for like ever. So would you like to tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what led you to where you are today and especially releasing the immunity code? I guess the best way to describe it is uh, my history is just the history of the future. So <laughs> for most people, it's it's really the road that we're all on as consumers. And what happens if you play things out long enough to the majority of things that most of us think are going to solve the problems that we want solved. And that's that's kind of been my road. And it's it's the road most people are going to find themselves on. And it has a lot to do with reality versus fantasy and how things actually work in the body versus what we're told. And so I always get asked a lot, like, how'd you learn all this stuff? Where'd you get all this? And, you know, the answer was just really necessity because I had for years been doing prescriptions, things that were prescribed by experts. And I would do those things and I'd do those things for, you know, years on end. And then I always noticed the same pattern and it's the same pattern you see with the administration of just about anything in the body where you see kind of a short-term benefit, list of benefits, you know, all great. And you think it solves your problem. And then long-term, you actually see the reverse. You see problems long-term. And that's just true of most things, most things that people are going to do. And those, those things really pile into much larger trends we'll talk about today. But you know, for me, it started at a very young age, just kind of being a Jack Lane acolyte. And, you know, like a lot of people now who follow other people, maybe people who are even kids right now following, you know, Instagram stars, it just kind of started that way. And so I tried everything over decades. And I was kind of the prototypical consumer for the mainstreaming of bodybuilding from the 70s and 80s, starting with kind of Weeder and then moving into Bill Phillips and all that. So along that road was, you know, what you would call time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, you know, what you'd call paleo, what you'd call fresh raw whole, just uh, and macro feeding, just about everything you can think of. And it really began with me with time-restricted feeding in the early 90s and kind of doing, uh, trying to understand MCTs and ketos. And, and uh, a lot of people don't know this, but keto kind of really made its first appearance in the early 90s with a bodybuilding federation headed up by Vince McMahon, where they put everybody on keto diets and and so the, the mainstream bodybuilding con community was just laughing their butts off at the whole thing because everybody showed up to what appeared to be out of shape, except for Gary Stratum. And so, you know, during that, it was during that period of time for me, it was a lot of like learning, a lot of, a lot of exploration, a lot of reading, doing things that were, you know, prescribed by, you know, very popular people. And so I was eating one meal a day in the evening. I was taking metrics, you know, when I, when I was hungry during the day, I was very low body fat, probably four or 5%, looked great. You know, everybody wanted to know my secret, blah, 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 blah. And about year five, I just started eating out of control. 
which is ironic because I get a lot of people coming to me nowadays going, oh, I've been fasting for so long and I can't stop eating. What's going on? And so it led me down a path primarily as a consumer to try and understand what I had done. And early 2000s, I was, you know, I had this website and I was posting articles and, you know, just trying to, trying to make sense of new research coming out. All of this led me into kind of this uh, culmination about year 30 of just quote unquote doing the fitness paradigm where I was in, I was not in fitness, not paid to be fit. I was in the real world ecosystem that people live in for the most part. And that's the one where over time you encounter, you know, job pressure, family pressure, you know, life pressure, all these different competitors for your time. And I went from being super fit to super fat, running a company during a startup phase, a three-year startup run-up. And, you know, uh, <laughs> so the net of all of that was I was very disillusioned because I had been a lifetime devotee of, quote unquote, the paradigm, the ethos of fitness. And what I discovered was that most of it translates very poorly over time in the real world ecosystem. So coming out of that around 2006, there was one day that was very distinct in my memory. And I just, I was really thinking a lot about like my, the, the last three, four years, I was thinking, gosh, like, you know, what could I have done differently? And I was looking at a plate and I just started drawing notes, like and arrows to the food, like take this here, then do this now, do that then. And it kind of, everything came out of that. And I was, I was doing really well uh, in a couple of businesses and I, my passion project was truth and health. That was what I wanted to do. And so I started this website. I just wanted to tell truth based on science articles. And so I started publishing hundreds of articles and it was all cutting edge research. And I quickly discovered at least at that time, no one cared. Everybody just wanted to lose weight. So <laughs> I created a software program. And a lot of protocols got built into that very early on, things like the gut biome and based on protocols that I had actually done for myself that were incredibly effective. And a couple things happened early on about 2009. One was that we got a, we got a, we got a test shot with GNC to see if the thing would sell. And it did. It, it actually sold. So that was fantastic. And then another key shift was not taking it out to the public, but instead making it a corporate wellness offering and pursuing credibility instead of like, you know, just trying to make it the next diet program. So, so we went after a really big hospital chain, took about a year to sell them. And the very first engagement was all medical professionals. So it was doctors, physiologists, you know, people that were really well-educated in the science. And I learned a lot. I, I learned a heck of a lot about the real world ecosystem, because what I was able to see is that some of the most metabolically challenged people are medical professionals, which I've never understood. And what came out of that was seeing the ecosystem they live in is filled with pressure. It's filled with no time. It's filled with these, you know, 24 hour, 72 hour shifts, you know, just eating on the go, all of these real life sort of factors that impinge upon all of us in the real world ecosystem. And so what came out of that was two things. One, I didn't do the measurements for that. They had their wellness centers do the measurements. So I was, I was apart from the data. And the second thing was that it was all medical professionals. So we had this fantastic data, like over a year, we had these incredible results. We got it all on video. So we have all these medical professionals. You can, you can actually see these today as well, where you've got you know, nurses and you know, physiologists talking about like, man, I can't believe this worked like this. This was amazing. And so that was kind of like the first big testing of the, of the, the protocols and the technology. And then a really kind of accidental thing happened along the way. And it was basically that I had the software and we had these engagements, very large engagements, very large. Like if you go to transcend.fit and you look, there's a video on the front from like 2012, you can see like, this was the city of Phoenix and you can see 500 people in a room 
And we would do flights of 500 people every four hours coming in. So I had this data harvesting machine. I was able to subject very large populations to protocols and immediately see the results. And so what I was doing was I was always a science junkie. So I was in the science reading the bleeding edge research on stuff. And I would find something, create a protocol out of it, put it in the system, test it. And then within days, I could get back and I could see if it worked or not. So there was this ability to do rapid trial and error on very large populations to see what worked and what didn't. And so out of that came this sort of treasure trove of, of IP or rather protocols or things that you're just now hearing about, like circuit rhythms and you know targeting incretin proteins for insulin sensitivity and all these cool things came from that. And I was able to rapidly just kind of find what worked and what didn't. And, and so this, I had this period of about five years where it was really just more about making things work in the real world, finding what worked, what didn't work on large populations, using software to mediate the data. And I wasn't really well known, you know, because I was in this little niche of corporate wellness and, and doing very large engagements with like entities like the YMCA, big entities like that. But it was very contained. What came out of that was sort of the 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 base alloy of what you read in the book in terms of realizing that solving the problem of the body had nothing to do with anything that we've been taught, like nothing, absolutely nothing to do for the most part. And so I would get in these conversations with people and I wound up doing some consulting. One of the companies was with Quest and Ron Penna, the founder of Quest, super, super interesting guy. We've had these amazing talks over the years just on all kinds of things. One of the, one of my favorite guys to talk to is you just, you know, we just love to talk about nutrition and pop culture and all kinds of things. And one of the things that came about in one of our talks was talking about methionine depletion in order to expand lifespan. And he hadn't heard of it before. And so I came into Quest and, and at that time, Ron was, Ron was putting together, you know, the Knights of the Round Table, all these, all these super intellectuals to work on different projects. And so it was a great, great period for learning. And people would ask me kind of stuff about weight and body fat. And I would give this long-winded answer, 30, 40 minutes long, relating to tissue translocation of macrophages and blah, 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 all this cool stuff. You know? and, and I guess the point where I was like, I got to write a book because I, I just can't keep repeating myself. <laughs> and that brings us to today. I love it so much. Not near anywhere on that level, but that was pretty much the reason I ended up writing my book was because I was just not tired because I love sharing the information, but it's just nice to be like, when somebody asks you, you'd be like, here, read this. It's all in there. Yeah. So many things. And so, cause a lot of my listeners practice intermittent fasting and I think for a lot of people, it can really work magically for a long time. Maybe it works forever, but then some people seem to, especially especially with the whole quarantine situation and rising stress levels and things like that, I know especially a lot of our listeners on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast feel like all of a sudden they're spiraling out of control and you know they were able to do this fasting, feasting pattern, and now it seems like their body is just screaming for the feast side of things. So involved with all of that, because you mentioned, for example, how like when you were doing your own personal diet journey that you were at a point where you're really low body fat, you looked really great, and then something flipped and you just couldn't maintain that anymore. So with all of that, so people who are low body fat or people who look really great on the outside or people who seem healthy on the outside, is that possible? And what I mean by that is, does it require a certain state that in the long run is going to backfire? Like what's the connection between 
appearing healthy, like aesthetically and like a low body fat percentage versus actually being healthy? And how do we like maintain that? And like with intermittent fasting, is it possible that people might be able to do that forever or is it going to backfire in the end? Let me throw a couple ideas out and then I'm going to answer your question kind of in part here. And then the totality of everything I say today will be the total answer of it. But so some ideas to think about. One is that there's two keys, two keys above all others to get the result you want. And you have to do two things. You have to deal with how the mechanisms actually work. Okay. So you have to deal mechanistically with how things actually work. And then the other key is that you have to deal with what really happens over time. Okay. Those are the two keys. And it, it just makes sense. Like if you think about it, if you think about it, if you're not dealing with how things actually work and you're not dealing with what's really true about what happens over time, then over time, you're not going to get the result you want. It makes perfect sense. Right. And so your question takes us into time and thinking about time and thinking about the short term versus the long run. And we have to begin with this understanding that if you just look over time at what really happens with most things, you're going to see a sine wave. It's going to start at the top, you know, kind of the topward end of the curve. And that that's all the benefits. And then over time, it's going to invert and you're going to see the bottom end of the curve. And that's all the negatives. Okay. And so the first thing you have to understand is that a lot of time in my book talking about what I call baby talk, which is something the human mind loves to do. The human mind loves reductionism. And reductionism is this idea that we can reduce things to simpler things until we finally get a single thing. Okay. Our minds love it. The human mind looks for it everywhere. And it's a massive, massive problem because it has nothing to do with the reality of how things actually work. When you look at the body, there's nothing simple about it. Nothing, not one thing. It is the most complex thing I've ever looked at. And I've looked at a lot of things in my life. The body is so massively complex that the problem of reductionism is a mental problem. It's a trick that our minds want us to jump into. And we're always looking for these simplistic answers to extremely complicated things. So when we look at things like fasting, the first thing we have to do is we have to change the words that we're using because the words program our mind to see it a certain way. And you have to just substitute fasting with starvation. And once you substitute the word starvation, your mind is going to give you better answers. Okay. So when you say, well, what's the long-term effects of starvation? Your mind goes to a very different place from what's the long-term effects of fasting. Now, not having food has been around for thousands of years. Okay. It's something the body knows very well and is programmed very well to deal with. And that's what fasting is. It's the cessation of food. Okay. There are life altering benefits to the cessation of food and the cessation of food also provokes numerous mechanisms designed to keep you alive, survival. And there's an interesting phenomena where the more you do it, the better the body gets at keeping you alive, keeping you surviving, right? I mean, that just makes sense if you think about it. Okay. That's just sort of the narrative piece of it. The practical piece is that long-term, what most people will will probably experience long-term, and it depends on how much you do with fasting, is that you're going to see an upregulation in things like leptin. And leptin is very interesting because it takes, it takes a long, long time to upregulate, like sometimes years. Like you get this very long-term effect of leptin, and it's going to drive feeding behavior over time. So in other words, the bill's not going to come due for a while, okay? But if you stop using the word fasting and just use the word starvation, your mind can connect the dots for you a lot faster. And so in the absence of food or the cessation of food or the periodicity of food, in the short term, 
there's benefits. There's lots of benefits to that that we'll go into today. But the long term is your body doesn't know the word fasting. It just thinks you're trying to starve it. Okay. And so the body's really good at thwarting our efforts. <laughs> the body's very good at keeping us alive. So, so the, so the answer, kind of the short answer here is there are ways to implement the benefits of fasting without the downside. If we begin to think about it kind of globally and get away from reductionism. So if we get away from the reduction of reductionism, oh, fasting's good. Fasting's good. Yay. If we get away from that and just objectively look coming back to how things actually work, you're going to see that well, all the mechanisms that you want to happen from fasting, they're there during sleep. They're just much stronger, much stronger during sleep. And fasting disrupts sleep by disrupting leptin. So disrupting sleep to get the benefits of fasting sort of doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay. But there are ways to get the same benefits without disrupting sleep, without disrupting leptin. So it brings us into a bigger question, a bigger conversation, and it gets us out of reductionism. So that's kind of the, the laying the foundation for that question. And then what we'll do, we'll just, be, we'll just keep unpacking this as we go along in our conversation here. Yeah, this is so incredible. And that was one of the things I loved so much about your book was the appreciation to language and semantics. And because it can seem like not a big deal, like how, you know, what we call things or how we're interpreting things, but I am personally obsessed with language and it literally creates, you know, how we're interpreting reality. I, I think like the way we're putting it into words. So all of that is just so, so key. So to that point, I want to like, I have some questions about the fasting and what we're calling fasting. So if we're substituting fasting with the word starvation, what do you qualify as fasting? So is it like how many hours without eating? So people who are doing like a daily eating window, are they still entering a starvation period or does it necessitate a longer fast? Okay. So in your question are elements of diurnal rhythm. So your question touches on 24-hour circadian rhythms. It touches on how food impacts circadian rhythms. It touches on the response to cessation of food over time. And whenever we cease food intake, there's always a response, like, like short-term within an hour or two. You know, you're going to see glucogen levels start to tick up just a little bit, okay, trying to get blood sugar up. And you're going to see, you know, glycogen depletion start to happen. So you're going to see things from the very, literally from, you know, within hours of ceasing food, you're going to start to see things. And so the only question becomes what happens as time, time goes on? Well, there's data that is interesting to look at. So for example, there's new data that shows every other day eating, in other words, so you're fasting 24 or then you're eating 24, probably promotes Alzheimer's. So ADF, what people call ADF. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So there's data on this and you, you can go, you know, you can go research that. What's the primary mechanism of action for the Alzheimer's? Well, it has to do with essentially brain metabolism of energy. There is a big cost to burning fat long-term. Burning fat long-term or burning, using or feeding fatty acids down the mitochondria long-term probably breaks the mitochondria. There's good evidence to show that, you know, that there's things to be concerned about. The process of pushing fats through oxphos, whether through the peroxisomes or through the mitochondria, produces tons of reactive oxygen species, okay? And so for the cell, any cell, whether those are astrocytes in the brain or different cells, for those, for those cells to maintain redox balance, a number of things have to happen. One of those things we'll, we'll touch on later is pexophagy, where you need to clear peroxisomes. And one of the ways we can practically clear peroxisomes uh, or initiate autophagy of peroxisomes is through 
carbohydrate feeding. So coming into feeding carbohydrates slams the proxisomes out of oxphos. We go back into using glucose for energy and probably initiates pexophagy. So really the way the body's using substrate over time in different tissues is something that it's not as simplistic as as we want it. Again, it's just reduction. It's not as simple as we want it to be. But the answer to your question then, what do we see when we start ceasing food intake? What window looks good? Blah, 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 all that. The first thing that we see is that we get an alteration in serum leptin levels when we start fasting. Okay. And leptin is a hormone that has a very large impact. So leptin and feeding go together. And I've said this on other podcasts, but it's good to reiterate here. Intact sleep is the most important thing we can do to preserve our health span or lifespan and, and keep the body young. Intact sleep is like number one. And the most powerful effector of sleep cycles are food cycles. So, and I, and I have, you know, clients that I coach where I do this with, like, we'll just simply, I'll just simply shift meal size and meal timing into certain periods of the day and we can induce sleep like immediately. And, and I've said this before, it's super easy to prove if it's like, what is it? Lunchtime right now, go eat 6,000 calories right now and try and stay awake. It's almost impossible. Okay. So sleep cycles and leptin are connected and so is fasting. So the longer we fast, the more we get an alteration in serum leptin, the more that disrupts diurnal rhythm. So these are just things to think about. There's a short-term effect. There's a long-term effect. Okay. What I've personally done through like in my book and, you know, things that I'm putting out into the world is mitigating the amount of time that we fast and maximizing the signal strength that produces the benefits from fasting. And so you get this sort of like, you get this kind of chicken or the egg thing of like, is it the fasting or is it the signals from fasting? Which is it? You know, and to a very to, to a very large extent, you can make an extremely good argument that it's not fasting; it's the signals from fasting. If when you look at like vegan diets and why they work, you know, they work on certain things. Well, they don't do very well on other things. But one of the reasons that they work is they accidentally restrict both leucine and methionine, and they accidentally restrict what's called fibroblast growth factor twenty one. Or excuse me, they accidentally stimulate FGF twenty one. So you restrict leucine, you restrict methionine, but you get a boost in FGF 21. All these things have a very significant impact on the body. You age a little bit slower and they help with a lot of different things in terms of like keeping the body lean. Those are kind of short-term benefits, but it's, is it really the vegan diet or is it the fact that they just accidentally restrict these things? And same with fasting. Is it really fasting or is it the signals from fasting? And so I, for me, strategy wise, I prefer to maximize the signals and the processes and then min minimize the time fasting. Which is not to say that every now and then it's not good to do a three-day fast or something like that. It's probably a good thing, but just sort of as an ongoing thing over the course of years. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. 
There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohackingconference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase Asana, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What When Wine. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. For listeners, um, a lot of you are probably familiar, but just in case you're wondering, so methionine and leucine are amino acids found in protein. So correct me if I'm wrong, but methionine tends to be higher in animal-based protein and vegans tend to be on the lower protein side of things. So just some clarification there. And actually, so this is so interesting and it speaks to my heart. <laughs> just love all of this so much because on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, my co-host Jen, so her whole brand, dare I say, is like the clean fast. So she's all about just drinking water, black coffee during the fast and like nothing else. But I've always like pondered it slightly differently because it seems to me that if like, it's what you just said, like it's potentially not the actual fasting itself. It's the signals created from the fasting. So it seems like to me, if you are taking in substances during the fast that, you know, accentuated that signal, that that would have the potential to, you know, amplify the, the fast and get bigger bang for your buck in a way. It's just an ongoing debate we sort of have on that show. One more quick question about the fasting, because you were speaking about how fasting and the circadian rhythms, how, or starvation, dare we say, disrupt sleep rhythm. So what about listeners who are practicing one meal a day, but they're eating in the evening? Would that support, I know it's like a very general question, but would that be more supportive of the sleep? Uh, long-term, no. Long-term, no, it's probably, probably disruptive. But short-term, short-term, you'll see a lot of benefits from doing that. But essentially what you're describing is Ramadan fasting. There's a lot of research on Ramadan fasting. Long-term, you're probably going to see weight gain on it, like if you study Ramadan fasting. Short term, you'll probably see a lot of benefits. So whenever we're talking about anything, any protocol, 
we've got to get out of this thing of just sort of wanting to, to create this reductionistic answer of, oh, well, it does this. Because the answer is, it does this in the short term. In the long term, it probably does something else. That's that's the answer to that. So listeners in the book, which you're just going to have to get the book because there's so much in there and there's protocols to follow and it's it's very specific. But in the protocols, you talk about the importance of, is it the what, when, and how? So, you know, it's not just do this and it's not just, you know, when you do it. And it's, <laughs> but basically you have to do what, when, and how for everything. And I know that that seems very vague, but yeah, what is the, what is the thought there as far, like when we're implementing these different techniques, what do you mean by the what, the when, and the how? Yeah. So if you think about it, there's all of fitness, all of biohacking is just one question. It's, it's a question that involves what, when, and how, but that's really the answer to everything is whenever you're asking a question, you're asking about something like maybe it's fasting. And then with that, because we are diurnal creatures, there's always a when, and then there's always a how to the thing. Okay. And what, what I present in my book is that the idea that the biggest problem we have today is confusion because you've got all these people who are, you know, allegedly experts and they're all talking completely like across the cross purposes with each other. You know, one guy's sort of saying, you know, well, you should do X, Y, and Z. And the other guy's, no, 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 you should do ABC, not X, Y, Z. And you really don't have a mechanism to know who's just completely full of it. Okay. And what, when, and how is a syntax. It's, it forms the basis of a new way of thinking. That syntax will actually help you to see through everything. Because whenever you're hearing this kind of like polarized, sort of reductionistic, it's this one thing, you can be sure, absolutely sure that it's incorrect. <laughs> it doesn't mean that there may not be truth to it. But when you're dealing with like multiple spokes on the wheel, and the real truth is that all the spokes support the wheel and, and someone's trying to argue, no, no, this, this spoke, this is the one, the one upon which everything turns. You can be sure that's not the correct answer. So what, when, and how is sort of what I call, it's, it's, the, it's the language of real health. And it's the way to understand anything. And when you start using what, when, and how for anything, everything changes completely. Like I use the example in the book of a baked potato. So, you know, depending on your school of thought, like, like a baked potato is bad. Okay. So one school of thought is it's a carb. Carbs are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another school of thought, you know, your vegans would be, oh no, it's, it's, it's a plant. It's good. It's good. <laughs> but when you, when you take that reductionistic stuff and just push it aside and then go, what, put what, when, and how to it becomes, well, the what's potato, the when would be, well, the day before fast. Why? Well, because it's food for bifidobacteria. Bifidobacteria potentiates bacterial mitochondrial crosstalk, and it helps to amplify all the benefits of fasting. If you get it the day before fast and the how is cold. Well, why cold? Because the starches congeal into resistant starches, which are food for bifidobacteria. So if you have it cold the day before fast, it doesn't feed you, it feeds the bacteria. And so boom, I just took something that was either good or bad, and I made it actually fit a protocol that's real and useful. Now, two things, how things really work and what really happens. I just fit, I just fit something that is either good or bad into a protocol that's based on how things actually work. Bifidobacteria love resistant starch. Okay, so they feed on that. That's how things actually work. The other piece of the equation is what really happens. Well, what really happens is if you can time that the day before a fast, you're going to potentiate phytobacteria, which potentiates B vitamin production, which potentiates sort of all this mitochondrial bacterial crosstalk when you're sleeping. So you get AMP K pathway activation. You get all these great things that potentiate the signals of fasting. And so we just we just transcended this simplistic baby talk into something that is much, much more similar to a martial art than it is this kind of like baby, baby talk. 
it's it's just learning to move just like in a martial art like okay you're standing up you know your opponent just grabbed you around the waist and he's going to try and take you down there's a move for that there's an app for that there's a way to counter that and and that's kind of really what i'm doing that's what i've been up to my personal viewpoint of everything is that there's no one right diet for everybody. Like, please, if there was, I think we would have found it by now and it would work for everybody. And that, you know, what you basically just said, that everything is not good or bad. That said, I read your book and I want to thank you because it definitely challenged my own paradigm of how I see the world because I read that section about where you were saying how, you know, things aren't good or bad. Like it's all more context driven. And then you I think you challenge the reader to like think about these things that some people think are bad, some people think are good. I forget what all it was, but it's, you know, like meat or protein or fat or pretty much every single one I could like accept, except the gluten one. And I was like, no, I think gluten's bad for everybody. And then I was like, wait, so why would gluten be the exception like out of this whole list? So it was definitely like a paradigm shift. It's really interesting how hard it is to let go of, you know, the, these preconceived notions that we have in our in our brain and be open to to new ideas. To that point, so maybe diving into the whole gut microbiome because that's a huge part of the book. So with that example of taking the, you know, the cold baked potato for the resistant starch and supporting our bifidobacteria population. So is a key piece to that because a lot of people, myself included, and I think a lot of my listeners often struggle with GI issues and we feel like our, our gut bacteria aren't as compatible and symbiotic in a good way as they could be with our own body. So like with that situation, would a factor of the win be that person's baseline state of their gut bacteria? Like are only some people, because you talk about in the book, the paradox of gut bacteria and fiber and supporting them and that you need the gut bacteria to digest the things like the fiber and the different things, but you need those foods to create the gut bacteria. And I think so many people feel like, like that, like, like they want to build up this gut bacteria, but the foods seem to create more inflammation and more problems, but they need those foods to support that gut bacteria. That was a, like a long winded way of asking these protocols to, to grow up your bifidobacteria. And we can talk about acromancia as well. Does your starting point matter? And how do you jump in? And I know you've got your fun I say fun, but I really want to try it. The apple skins and the HMOs and all of that. So yep. yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent matters. Yeah. hundred percent matters. Yep. So first thing to say is that there's no 100% solution doesn't exist. Nothing works for everybody, but there are there, what there are is incremental probabilities of things working and incremental probabilities of little shifts having massive consequences down the road. So your starting point matters a whole heck of a lot. And the way to understand it is to use the word fitness. So, so your, your gut has a level of fitness. And when you're saying, oh, my gut doesn't handle this, my gut doesn't handle that, blah, 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 blah. Really what you're saying is you're, you're equating your gut to like, let's say obesity, for example. Okay. So let's say that your fitness level starting out was, was, was you were obese. Okay. I'm not going to have you run a marathon. Like, like you're, you can't. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're going to need to start at a different level. Or maybe maybe to start, you're, you're, you're super fit, okay? You're super fit to start. And so you probably could run a marathon, but, but maybe let's just start you on, you know, three miles a day and see how you do with that, okay? So you have different levels of starter gut fitness. And those range all the way from the analogy would be morbidly obese to very fit, okay? And, and I hope this analogy is being conveyed. I'm just trying to give us something visual that we can lock onto to relate to the gut. Now, one thing that's very common nowadays that I run into a lot 
is you have people who have done sort of extreme diets for going on four or five years and their guts are messed up. And there are reasons for their guts being messed up. There's, you know, keto diets uh, long-term are probably going to give you some very serious issues in the gut for a number of reasons. And then what they'll do is they'll change the diet up and then they'll, they'll find benefits in the new diet they're on. You know, like, oh, I, I'm doing carnivore. I feel fantastic now. Oh, it's awesome, right? Well, once again, short-term, long-term, you're, you're seeing short-term benefits, but long-term, you're going to see complications. Most likely, most likely probability is that you're going to see that. So, so more than ever today, what we see is this overfeeding on probiotics, overdoing extreme diets, all these different things. And they've combined into like, suddenly everybody's got a gut problem. Okay. And so, so there's a, there, there are levels, uh, there, there are different points of entry based on how bad you are. The super inflamed gut or the condition specific gut cannot start on fiber because mechanistically speaking, when the gut is inflamed, there are a number of mechanisms that are going to prohibit fiber working in the gut. And, I, and I've said this on Ben's podcast before, but the transporters you need for butyrate are not going to be working. They're switched off. And in order to get them switched back on, there's kind of a triage that needs to take place in the gut. And so typically what you'll find is that the first step is amino acids. And this is why people who do carnivore diets initially feel much better because there's amino acids in meat. And those amino acids feed the gut and they potentiate the healing of the gut, they potentiate immunity in the gut. So amino acids are kind of like your first step usually if you're on that far side of like sort of inflamed gut issues. But at the, And then along with that, there are sort of different levels and different entry points for how to begin to introduce fermentation of the right bacteria in, back into the gut. Kind of in your most extreme case is like you don't have any bifidobacteria populations in your gut. And I've seen that. In those cases, you're, you're going to need some kind of probiotic. My opinion on this is that the future of this is kind of in the hands of practitioners where there are very specific outcomes you can get from the administration of very specific strains of bacteria, very specific, like within the bifidobacteria family or the lactobacillus family or the clostridium family. And, and they're kind of condition specific. So I think in the hands of a good practitioner, you can get some fantastic results. So in those cases where, and the way you're going to know is like you try something initially like human milk oligosaccharides and they're, and they're not working for you. It's because there's nothing there to ferment them. And, and so in that case, you need like a starter dough, so to speak. But then what you'll find is that, you know, there are people who are a little bit farther down the road. They've got the starter dough. They don't really have gut inflammation. They just don't have the bacteria present to handle foods, a lot of different foods. And so in that case, it's, it's just a question of baby stepping. What you're, what you're doing is you are hormetically introducing going from small to smaller to more to greater. And that, that's the key is the baby stepping. The most common mistake that happens is that you've heard kind of this what, the what is this, these foods and these foods are going to solve my problem, but you're, you're missing the when and the how. The when is like slowly over time <laughs> and the how is usually in conjunction with aminos or other things. And so if you'll follow kind of like the right sort of like order of operations, you can over time build these tolerances back in the gut. I've done it myself. I've seen many, many people do it. The biggest problem we get into is we overdo it. We do too much too fast. And then you have this symptoms outweigh benefits kind of reality. And so the, the key, once again, is just, just baby stepping your way back in as you work up the chain of, of using different foods. And you can go, you can go from zero to hero. Like I personally have experienced like massive massive dairy problems, like can't have dairy, any kind of dairy, just horrible acne if I have it to like, could, could drink a glass of cold milk, wouldn't bother me a bit. And, and the research completely supports this as well. Like in the research, there's, there's a growing body that, sh that shows clearly that 
the increased populations of things like Phytobacteria necromancia basically ameliorate much of the symptomology of things that we think are impossible, like gluten intolerances and dairy intolerances and all that kind of stuff. So many things. So many things. Okay. Clarifying question. When you speak about amino acids, are you speaking about like isolated, like people taking L-glutamine or amino acids from like meat in their whole form? Either or. Either or you're going to see benefits. You'll see see the amelioration. Either way, if you eat meat, you're going to get the amino acids. If you're eating or if you're just taking straight amino acids, like and you, in some of these you want to do in combination, like like glutamine should go with arginine. Then you want to have tryptophan. You want to have glycine. You want to have like kind of you know this family of amino acids in the gut. But you'll you'll get the same either way. So and this takes us into like the, the biggest problem here is the polarization of thought. Like like if you're too overcommitted into one way of thinking, you know maybe it's maybe you're plant based or vegan. You're ah, no, I don't need never add that. Well, again, you've gotten away from how things really work. So mechanistically speaking, the gut needs aminos, and the best sources of those are animal animal foods. It, it, and it's not it's not even an option. Like it's just, they're essential. Conversely, if you're kind of hyperpolarized into the meat camp, the meat side of things, the gut needs butyrate, and the best way to make butyrate is through fibers, hands down, bar none. And and if we have time, I'll break it down in this podcast exactly why that's true. So you, you there really is a need for both. And with meat. What you see with meat in the gut is that meat by itself absolutely potentiates cancer, hundred percent, like like hundred percent. If we break down mechanistically what's going on in the gut, you're going to see uh, an increase of pH in the colon. Which, by the way, again, more baby talk. High pH is good, low pH is bad. No, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Higher pH in the colon, it's, it's going to be a cancer promoter. And the addition of a little bit of fiber will bring that pH back down, bring it into the right range. It'll also suppress the colonic fermentation of bacteria that can ferment meat and, and cancer promoting adducts as a result. So again, short-term, long-term, short-term, tons of benefits to taking aminos into the gut via meat. Long-term, you're creating probabilities that unless you offset those probabilities with a little bit of fiber, create, create a mathematical sort of greater, greater chance of cancer forming in the colon. Quick question. You said higher pH is mitigated by fiber, like a more alkaline state. So if you're just eating just meat, just meat by itself and lots of it, you're going to increase the pH of the colon. That's not good. (laughs) That's not good at all. But doesn't it make it a lower pH, more acidic? No, mm-mm. no, it's the reverse. It makes it alkaline. Mm-hmm. Yep, hundred percent. I think I'm very confused now. Well, that's because that's because we've been spoon fed one dimensional baby talk about how things work. We've been we've been taught that meat's acidic and therefore meat's, meat makes things acidic. Okay, and therefore acid is bad. Acid causes cancer. Has nothing to do with how things really work, and this is why so many people are not getting the results they want long term because they're following this course of action that's not based on the mechanisms and how things actually work. <laughs> so you've got to come back to mechanistically how do things really work and what really happens over time. How things really work is that when you are taking large amounts of meat in the gut, you're going to get what are called alkylated carbonyls that form in the gut, and these these potentiate nitroso compounds in the gut. And it's driven by increases in pH. This is fascinating. Yeah. And well, again, it's just deprogramming. It's just, it's just getting all the, all the manure that's out there out of your brain and just focusing on how things actually work. I even had to correct someone on this who, I won't say the name, but they kind of had this whole thing going about the acidity of meat is not bad because X, Y, and Z. It's actually alkaline. And I had to point out, 
yeah, the alkalinity of it is bad. <laughs> the alkalinity of it is, is what promotes the, you know, so. Does the flip side also apply? So does a low meat diet create an acidic state or does it also create an alkaline state? Well, you have to talk about the compartment of the body. So when we talk about acidity and pH. So right now, I guess not the stomach would be the. The colon, the colon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing that, that kind of a big rumor that, or not a rumor, but a misconception that needs to be dispelled is the idea that taking in alkalinity makes you alkaline. Okay. There's a guy that does a better talk on this than me. And I'm, and I'm using some of you know his stuff here, but I had him speak at one of my body hack seminars and, you know, he makes a really good case that think about it. The stomach is acidic by its very nature. Like regardless, pretty much. Yeah. If the stomach becomes alkaline, you're going to be in big, big trouble. Okay. Big trouble. Like you might be in the hospital. So if you, if you drink your half gallon of alkaline water, the stomach must immediately neutralize it and make it acidic. As you go through the digestive tract, what you're going to see is that different pHs work as switches and you'll have different pHs in different compartments of the digestive tract and they work as switches that potentiate different metabolic functions. So all through the, all through the digestive tract, you're, you're going to see different pH levels, and that's normal for the digestive tract. You're not going to see, in some, in some spots, it's going to be very acidic, in some, some spots it'll be more alkaline, but it depends on the compartment. That was fascinating. Another question while we're, we're in this world. So going back to bifidobacteria, as well as acromancia. So we can supplement bifidobacteria, like mentioned, and but you also mentioned how that's not always the route to go. Yeah. So what happens there with bifidobacteria? Like if we supplement it, what happens? How does it relate to acromancia, which obviously there's not an acromancia. I say obviously, but we can't supplement acromancia. But you talk about the the connection between, is it that bifidobacteria feed acromancia? What's the connection there? Yeah, it doesn't feed it directly. What it does is it feeds other bacteria that produce metabolites that feed acromancia. Okay. Yeah. So within the, the gut mucin layer, you've got two bacteria that really matter. You've got acromancia and then you've got fecal bacteria prosmitsi. And of those two, acromancia is by far the more important one. And acromancia, it's a commensal bacteria. So it's, it's something that we need to be healthy for the most part. Like in most cases, you will find a, a few cases where things like lupus or things like MS, that you've got too much acromancia going on. But for most people in most cases, figuring out ways to keep acromancia levels kind of like adequate as we age is a big, big deal because it's going to keep the gut mucin layer intact, the gut mucus layer intact. Do antibiotics wipe out like everything, acromancia, bifidobacteria? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. But you know, it's not a bad thing. It's, it actually can be a good thing. So one of the benefits of certain types of antibiotics is they're going to they're gonna help flush senescent cells. And it's probably not a bad idea to do once or twice a year just to flush senescent cells. And then you can rebuild the, the bacteria in the gut sort of from the ground up. Any particular antibiotics? Like a Z-Pak. A, a Z-Pak is really good to flush senescent cells. Okay. Oh, this is fascinating. I wish I'd had this mindset last time I had to go on a round of antibiotics. I was like, no, but I think it probably would have been more empowering if I was like, well, flushing senescent cells, here we go. <laughs> I have a course called the Immunity Crash Course where we actually do this. And you sit there and you, you'll, you'll actually go through and do that. And um, if you have a practitioner to get with, which I think this is such an exciting time for, you know, like health practitioners, because there's this kind of whole new avenue via the gut that's opening up to do things that are incredibly powerful, condition-specific things. And so I think that as practitioners get more and more adept at manipulating, you know, very specific strains, I think we're going to have this renaissance in health in society because I, I, I just 
personally experienced and witnessed these things happen where in my own family i've seen these things where you can take things that are very condition specific and just through modulating the gut you can get rid of the symptoms so you know i'm excited i actually work with quite a few practitioners and it's just such an exciting time right now this is absolutely incredible you mentioned the the butyrate as well so being generated by the bacteria but then also the need for transporters to actually you know use that butyrate so how how do you feel about butyrate supplementation because i know a lot of people will supplement with butyrate at least in my community is that a potential problem i was playing around with it but then i read your book and i was like oh maybe not <laughs> unveil my bias my bias is i'm i'm very food centric I'm of the bias that food is the most powerful thing out there when used correctly. The reason people don't have like amazing results with food is that is, is they lack the what, the when, and the how. But when you implement food protocols and sort of that, that syntax, the syntax of real health using what, when, and how with food, you see things incredible. I've seen things that drugs can't do using food. That being said, you know, the thing with supplementing butyrate, there's a couple things to consider. So first we have to think about the oral cavity and there's some mixed evidence regarding supplemental butyrate in the oral cavity. So butyrate uses the pyruvate pathway, I believe in the oral cavity. Um, don't quote me if I got that one wrong, because there's four different pathways that metabolic pathways that butyrate can use. In other words, you have bacteria in the mouth and those bacteria have metabolic pathways. One of them is uh, pyruvate and you can essentially kind of generate these cancer promoting compounds from that. Then there's a little bit of conflicting research with that that shows that butyrate can actually help oral cancers, but but it's mixed, so you kind of see a little bit of both. So erring on the side of caution, you know, that's kind of the first checkpoint for me against oral butyrate. Now, maybe you're taking encapsulated butyrate, okay? Maybe that's, you know, but still uh, you don't know, right? Wait, some people take butyrate like not in a capsule? I couldn't imagine doing that. It just It smells <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's like drinking vomit. <laughs> yeah, I know. How was your vomit shake? Oh, fan fantastic. Would you like some? <laughs> you know, I'm like pretty capable of like like most things, but even the capsules, I'm like, <laughs> it smells so bad. Sorry, tangent. Okay. The other thing with butyrate though gets to the dose level and you have to kind of be, you have to be a little bit careful about the dose level of butyrate. So when you get beyond a certain level in the gut, the benefits of the butyrate invert, and it can be possibly a cancer promoter. So what you see with food is you'll get the right dosing of butyrate. And with supplements, I don't know that it's adequately understood, which is not to say that in the hands of a practitioner, again, maybe there is a, a good place for butyrate. I, I'm just speaking to kind of in general. Okay. I also tried a, oh gosh, I tried a butyrate enema. I was like, ooh. <laughs> Like never again. The smell. That's like shoving vomit up your butt. I know, I know. But I was like, maybe I. Can. I don't even know. I don't know. These are the things I do. What other things do you do? Uh, you don't. Uh, <laughs> EMF canopies, like I don't know, hydrogen water sauna. Okay, that's that sounds cool. Shooting myself up with like glutathione. That's not stop bad either. Okay, so maybe dry needling. There's a lot. Probably mostly good. Dry, we'll have to talk about the dry needling. I just got this little little device that like, it's, it's like a dry needler on steroids. It just goes and it does all the work for you. And you do it to, your, to yourself? Yeah. 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 It doesn't stick a needle in you though, does it? It does. It sticks like multiple needles. At home dry needling? <laughs> Wait, what? Oh my gosh. It, it, yeah. It's, it's like a jack. Basically it's a jackhammer reduced to like little kind of a little small tip size and it just Pummels. So I kind of got it and I, I thought, well, let's try this. And I, I did that. And then I used some GHK uh, CU on top of it. And I looked like I had a sunburn for a week. 
And I was doing this recording for this course I have coming out. And it's just, my face just looks like swollen and puffy and red. And I was like, was this a good idea? You did it on your face? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So funny. Speaking of needles really quickly, do you wear CGMs ever? I do not. I probably am going to just to do some experimenting on myself at some point. I just really haven't had the time to mess with it. Yeah. I was just thinking about it because I'm trialing two companies right now. I'm bringing them on the show, but I'm trying both their devices. And it's funny. Like I, like I said, I stick myself with stuff all the time in the name of biohacking, but I was like really scared to put it on. Like it looks really intimidating with the needle, but you don't even feel it. I have it on right now though, which is sort of fun. Also B word supplementing and we already talked about it, but bifidobacteria. So you mentioned that it, yeah. How do you feel about people taking probiotics, specifically bifidobacteria? My current blend is all bifidobacteria because of the histamine like aspect of the lacto family. How do you feel about supplementing probiotics? I think it should be con- condition specific. And I, I would probably do it with a practitioner towards a very specific goal. That's how I would do it. I wouldn't indiscriminately take them just because and I've talked about this many times before, but I, I don't think that we can 100% control where they open up. So I think that what I personally witnessed is over time, as many issues and problems as you have, you know, kind of perceived benefits. And again, it's that it's that inverted uh, sine wave. So short term, the sine waves at the top, you see benefits, long term, you see issues. And so, but I do think that you know, when you look into the research and you look at like, you know, condition specific things for like, you know, all kinds of things, you know, Parkinson's and different things. I think that, that there's a real role there for taking very specific strains and administering them under like a practitioner's care. I think that's a really good thing. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Friends, You guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. 
Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Okay, awesome. And dying for you to tell listeners about your... Apple skin HMO protocol. A listener in my Facebook group the other day brought it up. I was like, have you tried it yet? And I said, I, I said I hadn't. Um, and she said that every person that she knew who had tried it, that it was just like a game changer. Yeah. What's going on with Apple skins and phenols? Yeah. I mean, it's really good to hear, you know, like, like what I'll hear back is I'll hear back the one person it didn't work from. <laughs> you know, like I did your apple kids and I'm not, I'm not bloated and I hate it. Ah, you suck. <laughs> and, yeah. And like, it's like I said, you know, I used to do when we were doing these big corporate wellness seminars, you know, I'd have to get up and speak to like you know, a lot of people all at once. And the very first thing I would say 
is because I, I was always extremely concerned with truth in this in this because I was always the the guinea pig, and you know I, I remember you know taking supplements that I later found out were spiked and just being incredibly angry about that. And because you're taking my health in your hands, you know, so I was always very concerned with truth. The very first thing I would do is I'd get up and I would say, all right, look, there's no 100% solution. Nothing works for everybody. We don't work for everybody. Weight Watchers doesn't work for everybody. And I always wanted to kind of frame things with that. And that's just the truth about anything. And and that's because when we get into, um, the body, there can be so many variations between genetic SNPs, the secretome, you know, all kinds of things that can, that can have, you know, and, and what we know is like, it's a bit like the universe and the observable universe, like the observable universe is kind of X and the, and the, the actual real universe beyond what we can see is a, a billion times that size. We don't know. And that's, that's kind of the way our knowledge is. But so what this gets to is um, my book is really about one thing and it's about paradigm shift into an immune centric approach to health. And the idea that when you, when we keep asking the question, how do things really work, what we're going to come up with, the answer is going to be, oh my gosh, immune mechanisms are how things work. Immune mechanisms are at the core of everything. Everything comes back to immune mechanisms. And when we look at the gut and we look at how the gut got started, there's a sequence of things that happened. And all of those things impinge upon and revolve around immunity being established in the gut. Because really, when you think about it, the gut, we take in the outside world into the gut and it stays the outside world. Some of it, it never becomes part of us and then it passes out of us. So there's this selection process that has to be made. The, the gut's like a computer interface. It has to do all these complex calculations about what gets in and what stays out and what to defend against and what to let live, okay? It's mind-bogglingly complex. So when we come back to looking at how the gut got started, there's some, there's some key players that right away come up. One of them is mother's milk. And contained in mother's milk, there are these very specialized carbohydrates called human milk oligosaccharides. These are sugar proteins, they're glycans, and they are, they are extremely involved in the establishment of immunity in the gut. There's several immune mechanisms in the gut that benefit from these things. And they work to help establish the initial colonies in the gut of bifidobacteria. And when we are infants, bifidobacteria is kind of the key player in the gut. Then we begin to dive down and look at the different strains of bifidobacteria. Suddenly, what happens is this picture opens up that links mother's milk, bifidobacteria, and immunity, sort of like equal players, one, one to one to one on the playing field. So what you see is that in the early gut, what happens is as bifidobacteria gets established, Phytobacteria has this incredibly power, powerful effect on dendritic cells or dendrites in the gut. And dendrites are essentially like go-betweens. They're, they are antigen samplers or antigen presenters. What they do is they grab antigens in the gut lumen and they present them to T cells. And then T cells kind of have this job to, you know, bake up like antibodies and secretory IgA and spin that up in the gut. So, so there's this daisy, daisy chain of events that happens in the gut. So bifidobacteria acts kind of like a traffic cop and kind of like the rails on the train. It steers dendrite sensitivity and dendrite specificity to antigens in the gut and, and kind of like really helps dendrites do their thing. And then from there, you get what are called uh, microbial associated molecular patterns or MAMPs. And these are sort of downstream signaling cascades that affect T cells, secretory IgA, and then all these signal cascades, like all of these interleukins and you know interferon gamma and all these other things that are potentiated in the gut by the presence of HMOs and bifidobacteria. And along with that, there are key substrates like phenols that help to feed the right bacteria in the gut. And the thing with apple peels 
it's funny because when I put this in, in, in my book, what I was doing was the first part of my book is sort of corrective in nature. It was the assumption is most people are coming in and their guts are a mess. So we got to do a little triage. So we're just going to start with simple steps that you can add on. You know, first step is, okay, take some, take some skins of apples. That's like a stupid step anybody could do. Go get some apples, go get a bag, skin them and eat those. Okay. And then the next step is add in these red phenols and then add in these milk carbohydrates, these HMOs. And just, and the idea was to create simple steps that you could do to kind of do the triage. And the analogy I use is it's like changing the oil on your car. So when you're, when the oil hasn't been changed in a long time, we haven't had a tune up, you need something special. You need to take it to a shop and they need to just kind of do a few things and, and boom, the car's running great. And you don't have to come back and do it for a while. Okay. And so all these protocols at the front of my book were meant to be that. And what happened is they kind of took a life on of their own. So like I go to Google now and it's like Joel Green, apples, apple peels, <laughs> Joel Green, apple skins. <laughs> and, the, but the reason for having the, uh, the apple skins in there was that they're very complementary to, to the red phenols and the HMOs because, and I explained this on Ben's, pod, Ben's podcast, but essentially you have these extremely long chain phenols that, that are that are contained in apple skins. They are what's called highly polymerized procyanidins. They are huge, 30,000 Daltons long. And so they're, they're so big, they don't digest. And what they do is they tend to park in certain places in the gut and they help the phytobacteria ferment. And then if HMOs are present with that, you get, and red phenols, you get kind of this perfect brew. And what most people will experience doing that is the first couple of days is they're going to get kind of nauseated. And the reason you're feeling nauseated is a war is going on. And just picture, just picture like, you know, Braveheart, uh, you know, on one side, you've got, you know, you've got Longshanks and the English. And then on the other side, you've got William Wallace and the two are meeting. Okay. And there's blood spilling everywhere. And only in this case, it's not blood. It's lipopolysaccharide and lipopolysaccharide is a cell. The bane of my existence. <laughs> it's a cell wall fragment and the gut doesn't like it. It exerts very specific signal mechanisms in the gut. It's like a key. It opens the gut up, it gets in the blood, and then it translocates and finds our fat. And all kinds of things happen when lipopolysaccharide is present. It changes the polarity of macrophages. We'll talk about macrophages later, but it changes them and does all these things. So when you have a fever and that fever breaks, what happens is you kill bacteria. And when the bacteria die, their gut spills open and they spill lipopolysaccharide. And what happens is you get nauseated. Okay, that nausea is lipopolysaccharide penetrating the gut because you're getting sick from that. And that's exactly what happens that first couple of days as you're killing off the bad bacteria. And then what happens a couple of days later, what a lot of people report is their energy just skyrockets. Like, Man, I feel amazing. I feel this energy. What's going on? I didn't do anything. It's just these stupid apple peels. And what's going on is that you are restoring the physiology you had when you were very, very young, which is bifidobacteria centric and bifidobacteria make tons of B vitamins. And so your energy is going up. And you know, we've had this sort of conception of getting old, like, oh, I'm getting old. My energy is waning because my metabolism is going down. Well, that's true. But what's equally true is the gut bacteria populations are going down and they're taking your energy levels with it because you're not producing B vitamins anymore. And, and that's predisposing you to Alzheimer's and all these other things. So that's what most people experience in the first week or so of that protocol. And then I get all these questions like, should I do it forever? <laughs> and the answer is no, <laughs> no, I shouldn't do anything forever for the most part. It's meant to be a tool set that you have that you can pull out when you need. So if you went out and you ate a whole pizza, you might want to do it for a couple of days and then, you know, two, three days or a week, and then you, you can go off it until you need it again. Some follow-up questions about that. Does it need to be red apples? Yes. Okay. And those red phenols in general, are they in all red fruit? Are they in like strawberries and... I know there's something special about the apple skins, but in general, like the red phenols, 
I just want to know if they're in strawberries because that wasn't mentioned in the book and I like strawberries. Oh yeah, for sure. In fact, there's really good research with strawberries and uh, glucose metabolism, as crazy as that sounds. Like consumption of strawberries on a regular basis probably aids insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism. One of the reasons is that you get sort of this impairment of alpha, alpha glucosidase and alpha amylase from the phenols. And then the other side of it is it helps with bacteria. So yeah, the answer is yeah. I found myself, and we can talk about this maybe in a little bit, but I found myself kind of stuck in a low carb rut. And I say that because like the diet I felt really good on for a long time. And I know it's hard to know context because it could have been that that was setting me up for problems like we talked about in the beginning. But when I was doing like a higher carb, lower fat diet, I felt really good on it. And then when I went lower carb, I, since then I've like struggled. So like every time I bring back more carbs, I feel like I've lost all insulin sensitivity and it's a little bit frustrating. You probably have. You probably have. This gets to the question of, of ecosystems and, and the thing that I directly experienced. And, and again, so the other thing I, I mentioned top of the show was two things, you know, how things really work and then what really happens. And one of the biggest problems we're up against is fitness fantasy. And you know, we just have to, like, if you want results over time, you've got to get real about the fantasy aspect of things. And fantasy is great. Like it's motivating. Like sometimes it's great to just, you know, pull up in a magazine or go on Instagram before a workout and look at all these people in great shape and go, oh man, I want to get like that. It motivates you. And that's great. Has nothing to do with real life. Not one thing. Okay. And in fact, what you're going to find is that a lot of the protocols that work in the fitness ecosystem will not work in real life. And the answer is, the reason is time is that time becomes a commodity in real life that has a different set of equations or different mathematical probabilities to it that are not found in the fitness ecosystem. It doesn't take anything away from people who work in the fitness ecosystem. You know, like that's a dream for a lot of people. If you can do it, you should. But the key for people in the fitness ecosystem who are practitioners is to understand most of the protocols in that ecosystem will not translate in the real life. And so a really good example, I have a doctor who is one of my clients and you'd be surprised at, at the pressure the life doctors are under these days. I mean, they're some of the hardest working people out there. They're working their butts off and they're, they're, they're in a system that it just, it just doesn't give them a lot of love. And so one of the imperatives that, you know, we have, that I have with this client is that, you know, you hear all this talk about low carb and, you know, low carb, low, low carbs are bad. In the real world ecosystem for this client, carbs are essential has to have them. And that's because he's under so much pressure, making so much cortisol that we've got to give him carbs during the day at specific times in order to mitigate cortisol. Because if we don't do that, what's going to happen is he's going to get this cortisol build up during the day and then it's going to drop at about 2 a.m. while he's sleeping, wake him up and he's not going to sleep. So he needs carbs during the day. Cortisol levels needs to keep his energy up. And so this is a really good example of the real world ecosystem and the difference between protocols that don't work in that system because they're not dealing with the reality of it. Sorry for that tangent. It just kind of came to mind and I spilled it out. So, No, I love it. I welcome all tangents. I felt like in a way I had the best of both worlds when I was doing super high carb, low fat with intermittent fasting with a one meal a day type situation, because then I was doing like high carb in the evening. I felt like my cortisol would go down. I felt like I slept well. And then during the fast, I felt like I was primarily running on glycogen, but dipping into the fastest state as well. I don't know. Felt really good. And then I went low carb and now I'm like on the struggle bus. Every time I bring back carbs, I get like sugar cravings and it's upsetting, but. Well, one thing to understand is that there's a lot going on there. So one of the elements is the way butyrate is being produced in the gut from carbs versus protein. 
and they're, they're very different and you get some very different outcomes, which are going to affect things. They affect bacterial populations. And then those populations have their own effect on energy and metabolism. That was going to be my next question. So the guilds. Oh yeah. Bacterial guilds. Well, so in my book, I had this whole section about what I call, uh, well, I don't call them actually, this was in a research paper, what are called bacterial guilds. And there's this sort of perplexing thing in the research, which is that you see commonalities for substrate metabolism with bacteria that have nothing to do with one another. You know, they don't, they don't really seem to be related, but they are related and they do seem to impact um, host metabolism. And there was a, a concept put forth that I thought was really important a couple of years back. And it really has to do with what are called bacterial guilds. And it really gets to, to taking a look at the chemistry of how bacteria use basic elements like nitrogen and carbon and looking at like, well, okay, so we can see the, this family of bacteria here. They, they're not related. They're not related strains, but they have one thing in common. And, and that's, they all depend on exogenous sources of carbon. And from this, we begin to see things that are kind of somewhat predictable. Like you can actually make predictions about diets and, and where they're going to take you from this. And so a good example is when we look at the endogenous production of nitrogen. So this would be from fasting. It's going to feed very specific guilds and you can make predictions about that. Like you're going to see an increase in acromancia, okay, sh short term. But long term, you're going to see other things happen like bacteria that depend on external carbon in the diet. And so what you see with bacterial guilds is you can actually make long term predictions about things like weight gain and and what's going to happen. So for example, surprisingly, taking in what, what we would call carbs, taking in carbs, which is feeding carbon exogenously into the body is going to give you the highest probability long-term of staying lean, which is kind of shocking. Like, like, like we think exactly the opposite. We think, well, well, that can't be, we know carbs make you fat. So, you know, that makes no sense. Right. But when you look at the chemistry what comes in, what goes out. So, you know, we take in oxygen, out comes CO2, nitrogen, we take in carbon, you know, we get nitric oxide, you know. So the end product of all these things is that we're just moving around chemicals, essentially. And it's the bacteria that are doing it. So in my book, I introduced this idea called nitrogen partitioning. It just talks about like, like where, do, where do you get nitrogen from? Are you getting it from the diet or are you making it internally? Okay. And so that leads us into what's called quorum sensing, where you have different species of bacteria that can actually work together and they can cooperate to get nitrogen from the diet. And so the, the guilds tell us things like, the idea of guilds tell us how things like the sheer amount of food you're eating, like not, not, not the what, but how much, how much food you're eating, how that's going to impact the gut, or how not eating is going to impact the gut, or how the macro composition is going to impact the gut. And so what this does is we can make predictions based on specific foods, and the impact specific foods are going to have on individual species. Okay. So for example, we know like, well, if you, if you take in more polyphenols, you're going to get more like commensal phytobacteria. Okay. So that's an example of specific foods driving a specific species. But what the, the concept of guilds does is it tells us the impact of macros and it tells us the impact of total food intake versus cessation of food intake. And so it takes us into a way to predict like, well, what are these macronutrient ratios? What are they going to give us? Okay. So a couple of takeaways. One is that when we make nitrogen internally, so that's a combination of fasting and then a combination of certain other things, it, it tends to promote health. So, and it tends to promote acromancia. Okay. That's great. And then if we, if we get long-term feeding of protein, 
what we're going to see is that we're going to starve acromancia. So as we begin to go look at carbs, protein, fats, we can kind of see with macros how bacterial guilds are going to predict things. And so bacterial, the, the concept of bacterial guilds tells us that sustained high protein intake is going to drive nitrogen from the diet versus nitrogen internally. And it's going to advantage certain kinds of bacteria and it's going to disadvantage others. One of the ones it's going to disadvantage is acromancia. And so that is an extremely fascinating thing to ponder because, and that gets into like, that gets into like protein feeding and high protein feeding at different ages and what that's going to do. And it, it, there's not a simple answer to it. What our takeaway is, is that balance is key. That's really the takeaway when you study bacterial guilds is that we can use different protocols at different times for different reasons. Like it's a really good idea over 65 to increase your protein intake, particularly for men. And particularly for men in your 50s, it's a good idea to lower your protein intake and you're going to reduce your risk of cancer. So we can, we can use different eating protocols at different times for different reasons, but long-term we need balance. So that's probably my longest winded thing here in this whole thing. So I'll try and keep it a little shorter. No, no, I love it. I love it. I'm like hanging on every word. The bacterial guilds thing in the book was going to say it again, one of the most mind blowing things. And I had a huge epiphany because the consistent in my diet for the past, uh, ever since, probably ever since I went low carb, I've always had high protein intake. Like that's been the one consistent. So I, I wonder if like, I'll, I'll switch macros often between high carb versus high fat, but protein's always really high. So if the protein is high, that necessitates a state of external nitrogen. So does it override internal nitrogen production potential of the carbs, for example? Well, so high protein intake is going to be delivering exogenous nitrogen into the body versus endogenous. You know, so like simple rule of thumb is high protein feeding, you get nitrogen from the diet. Fasting, you get nitrogen made internally. Okay. So what, what this tells us, and then high carb, you get carbon from the diet. Okay. And so you can make a case of like higher carb plus fasting could be a really good thing, which I guess you could kind of say there's, you know, in my book, I have this thing called the two day pattern, which is kind of a foundation for, you know, putting all this together. And you, you could kind of make an argument. That's what it's doing. That it's it, the only, the only difference again, is the semantics. Like we tend to call a lot of fibers carbs, but they're not, they're not what we think of as carbs because fibers, when you break them down are very unique substances. And you know, very often they don't even feed us. They feed bacteria more than they feed us. When I was doing low carb at the beginning, like just low carb and then fasting, I still felt like tendencies towards wanting to overeat or like feeling like I was missing something. But then when I did go for a really long time, like I said, with really high carb, but fasting every day, like I, I remember I didn't quite understand because we get so many questions on the, on the intermittent fasting podcast about people struggling with like, like binge behavior or feeling like they're going to fall off the wagon or hunger or and I was like, I don't, I was like, I feel like I could do this for life. Like the protocol that I have. And I don't know if that was true or not true because I switched to went low carb again and I was just having trouble bringing it back. What you're going to see on that is, so what you're going to see on that is what you see a lot of in the real world is sort of the reverse of that. So what you'll see is people try and eat strict during the day because they're doing diets and they haven't taken into account seven day rhythm. So what they'll run into, for example, is Monday. The rule for Monday, as far as diets go, is that the meal plan never survives the first meal. <laughs> okay. So what will happen on Mondays is a lot of stress related to the start of the work week. And so cortisol levels go up. And what you'll find is that people on like low carb diets, they do really good the first part of the day, and then they get home and they blow it. And the reason they blow it is that their cortisol levels shot through from stress during the day, and then they're medicating on carbs at night get the cortisol levels down. 
And so that's actually a very necessary thing because uh, cortisol, you know, the body can burn, uh, the body can make glucose from cortisol. And what's going to happen is if you don't get that cortisol dump at some point during the day, you're going to get it during the night when you're sleeping, it's going to wake you up for the most part. So what you're doing is actually doing that. So you're fasting during the day and then at night you're having this big carb meal, you're getting this massive cortisol, cortisol dump, and then you feel like going to sleep, which is great. That kind of works. There's other, there's other aspects to that long-term that, you know, I, I think that works. What I'll say of anything is that we've got to stop thinking about things in terms of diets and start to think of them in terms of protocols or another move or another, another word for a protocol that will program our minds the right way is, is move. Like in martial arts, we have moves and you learn to apply the right move at the right time. And, and it's a way of thinking that begins to equip your mind to learn at an exponential rate and also to begin to think about when is the right time to do something. So like in your case, that's probably a fantastic thing for a while. It's probably a great thing, you know, like for a while, you can fast during the day for a season, you're getting some benefits, you're getting good sleep at night, but then, you know, it's time to change it up and maybe do some other things. And that gets into seasonal, seasonal rhythms. So when we look at seasonal rhythms, like one, one example is testosterone, it's higher in the winter. So there's a, there's, there's a, there's a good sort of line of thinking where, well, let's take advantage of that during the winter. We sleep more during the winter, testosterone's higher. Let's have a season where we're putting muscle on during the winter. That means higher protein feeding, you know, and all kinds of things. So again, coming back to, well, how do things really work? Well, that's another layer of how things really work. We're taking into account a daily, weekly, and seasonal rhythms, and then we're creating protocols around that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think it was in your book you were, about the Mondays and doesn't the, the stress on Mondays like it? It's like universal. The rhythm that you're talking about, you gave the specific days. Like Thursday was like the day to, to like I don't know, stress was lowest or something. Yeah, it's a real thing. It gets into chronoimmunology, chrononutrition. These are very real things. It, there's a tendency to think, you know, like to poo that kind of thing and think, oh my gosh, you know. But but it's actually. Like, I'm not making this up. Like, doctors are using this stuff to decide when's the best time to administer a medicine. And then you can quantify it and you can actually measure it and say, oh my gosh, wow, we did this one particular medicine on a Wednesday and we got 30% better results. Or we look at like statistics on things like heart attacks and we can go, oh wow, they really happened during winter, dur during, you know, on this particular day. Uh, we look at sodium retention, or sodium balance. We're saying, wow, it's got a seven day cycle and it's independent of sodium intake. Yeah, that was the salt. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and what this does is if you want to be on another level, you've got to take into account the next level. So the next level of getting beyond like, you know, macros and calories and all that stuff is this stuff. And it's, it's beginning to understand circadian rhythm and circuceptin rhythm and seasonal rhythm. And it's as real as it gets. It's hundred percent real. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.